0: You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Stand-up comedy has always been a tough and competitive industry to break into, let alone succeed in. Behind the curtain of bright lights and roaring crowds lies a world of setbacks, struggles, which many comedians have to face and overcome to make it to the top. Because humor on stage and a confident persona can often be a cover for deep fears and doubts that, frankly, every one of us face, including today's guest.
1: Hey, this is Lisa Lampanelli, former stand-up comic, current stand-up legend and icon, retired happily, living in the house where I grew up in, in Connecticut, and totally thrilled with my life now, kind of, except when I'm not. So, you may have heard of me on the Comedy Central roast. You may have seen me on the Howard Stern Show many times. And now, I guess you'll just see me at the supermarket because that's what I do.
0: <laughs> I was in college when I first discovered Lisa Lampanelli, a stand up comedian, insult comic, actress, and writer. And personally, I loved her sharp wit, fearless humor, and her ability to push those boundaries of comedy. And I'm certainly not alone among her legions of fans around the country. And as a matter of fact, she discovered this podcast through another Lisa, Lisa Howard, who was a guest earlier this year. And after hearing that episode... Lampanelli reached out to me personally about coming on the podcast, which was certainly a big thrill for me to receive a message from someone of her stature. Because as she mentioned, she has performed on countless stages across the country and released numerous albums and appeared on various TV specials. So it is an absolute honor to have Elisa on the podcast as we explore her unique style of comedy that made her a staple of the entertainment industry. On today's episode, Lisa will be sharing her stories of triumph and struggle and setback throughout her career in stand-up comedy. She'll talk about health issues and personal relationships, as well as her retirement from stand-up altogether. And as if it was written to be a comedy routine, I give a very clear but unfortunate example of why none of us should just assume the internet is correct, especially when it comes to celebrities. But for the most part, we delve into the highs and lows of her life and career, and the perspective she now has on the accolades and fame that she has received throughout the decades.
1: I have all my Grammy medals and my sold-out Radio City photograph and the frame this and the frame that, but they're all in the basement. They're hung up. I don't dishonor them or else just throw them out. But they're all like in the basement, hung up, cute or whatever, but it's a basement.
0: welcome and thank you for joining me for another episode here on why i'll never make it an award winning theater podcast hosted by yours truly patrick oliver jones an actor and singer for more than 30 years every other week i talk with fellow creatives who bring us stories from their own life of personal struggles and professional hardships with lessons we can all learn from the website is why i'll where you can subscribe donate and find past episodes again that's why i'll never make it.com Welcome, Lisa. This is such an honor and such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I'm so glad that we get to meet and talk today.
1: I know this is great. I liked your vibe instantly. So try not to change my mind.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'll certainly do the best that I can. Now, I've been such a big fan of yours, and it's kind of wild how you and I met.
1: Oh, thank you. It was so funny because a friend of mine, Lisa Howard, was on the show. Actually, she's more of like someone who was in a show that I did. And um, I just respect her so much. And I was like, oh, that sounds like a good idea for a podcast. So glad we did it.
0: How was it that you and Lisa Howard got to know each other?
1: I wrote a play called Stuffed for Off-Broadway and we did it at the West Side Theater, but she was in like the first iteration of it at the Westport Country Playhouse. And she's a freaking genius. So she went on to Broadway and we had to get somebody else to do uh, the run because mine was Off-Broadway. But I fully respect that. I fully respect when somebody has to go to Broadway. I'll take it. And it's funny because like I did, um, stand up for years, but I always had this food and, you know, body image stuff always on my mind. And, um, I was like, Oh, I want to write like a love loss and what I wore, but about food and body image. And, um, we, it took years to write, Oh my God, it probably took seven years to, to really complete it. And then we had two runs at, uh, west side theater and also at the women's project so it was pretty cool Uh, it didn't land what i wanted it to at the time or what i thought i wanted it to um but it ran enough and i always go well the people who needed to see it saw it
0: well let's talk about something that we both share in common i am a journalism major that's my degrees in journalism broadcasting and that's that's what you majored in in college as well
1: yes i did where did you go to college
0: in Samford University down in Birmingham, Alabama.
1: Oh, my God. At first, I thought you said Stanford. And I would say have felt, that all the time? Yes. I would have felt low self-esteem <laughs> because I went to Syracuse. So it's a good school, but it ain't Ivy League, if you know what I'm saying. Well, and so, sometimes
0: people say Stanford, and I just nod. It's like it's easier that way sometimes.
1: Yes. Well, actually, I had a boyfriend in comedy once who told me, if somebody comes up to you, even before you're on TV, like if, that's not you're not there yet. And they say, oh, my God, I've seen you on Comedy Central. Just say thank you. Like, just say, yeah, because you're not going to convince them otherwise. And they probably have you mixed up with Kathy Griffin, but it doesn't matter.
0: <laughs> but then they get excited. It's like they met this person today, you know, so yes. it leaves them feeling good.
1: Yes, sir. So, yeah, I was a journalist. Or I would say an editor primarily who also liked to interview bands because I loved heavy metal. I loved progressive rock. And this was the 80s. And I just loved meeting famous people and picking their brain. So I kind of did it until I got bored of it. And I was like, well, I met all my heroes. Uh, you know, I met people that are really interesting. What's next? And thank God for the world in 1990, I said, let me do an open mic and uh, the rest is history. That's, a, that's, that's
0: wonderful. Yeah, because you worked for various magazines, you went from popular mechanics. To Rolling Stone, very different yeah. magazines.
1: Well, what this is where the performer ego was there even before I was a performer, because I was so low in self-esteem that I was like, I want to just work somewhere people heard of. So the first thing that came across my path was Popular Mechanics. I'm like, well, it's a Hearst magazine. It's really good. It's in the same building as you know all these other really cool magazines, which I'm not working at. And let me just kind of work at Popular Mechanics. But then I saw an ad. Back then there were ads in newspapers. I saw an ad for an editorial assistant at Rolling Stone. And I was like, now that's really cool. That'll impress everybody. So sadly, up until probably five years ago when I retired, my life was just kind of to get some self-esteem and impress somebody, whoever (laughs) that is. So I think as performers, we have that in common.
0: What was the biggest band or the one you were most excited about that you got to interview?
1: Well, see, I was a progressive rock fan, as I said, so I loved Rush, Jethro Tull, yes, so I was a big nerd, but of course then they threw in people like Bon Jovi and Wasp and Cinderella and Slayer and all these bands that I couldn't care less about, but you do what you gotta do, it's like taking a bad gig in order to get a better one, you know, it's no, all given to And most people be like, Bon Jovi, that's great. I guess so. I just guess. I mean, he's great now. I just at the time was like, that's oh get It's stupid. And I'm like, now I'm like, I just talked to John Bon Jovi on the phone. Like I've talked to Ozzy Osbourne. So it's like pretty insane. It's kind of silly when you think about it. But those kind of nerdy bands are the ones that I really got got into.
0: As far as you, whenever you got into stand-up and then you started to make a name for yourself, did you start to feel like, okay, I'm I'm starting to make it. I'm starting to have a name for myself as well as these bands that I've been interviewing.
1: Well, it's kind of weird because I remember when Gene Simmons from Kiss just happened to be at a club I was playing in Philly before I was well-known. And he was like, oh my God, you're great. He was with like five women. And I was like, yes, that's the lifestyle. And um. He didn't remember me, of course, from having interviewed him before, but I'm like, and then I ended up roasting him years later on his TV show. And it's one of the highest viewed roasts ever. And I'm like cracking up going, "Talk about a full circle moment. But um, it's funny. I never had a perspective on if I was well-known. Like even when I was at my height, I'd say to my manager, like, do people even know who I am? And she's like, yes. She's like, I promise. And then something would come like the Celebrity Apprentice or something where they go, oh, that's like they wouldn't have asked me if I wasn't, quote unquote, somebody in the business. But it's still I still have no perspective on any of this. And it's kind of good because it keeps your ego in check.
0: Well, let's get into the first topic to talk about, and that is, after almost 30 years as comedian, you announced your retirement from stand-up in 2018, and it was a decision that shocked you know, your fans, it shocked you know, yeah. your ears as well. What was it that led you to this decision?
1: Well, I mean, I think I really feel that I just finally started noticing my life. And I always tell comics and actors that who feel disgruntled. I'm like, just notice your life. Are you 70% unhappy and 30% happy? And is it 30% enough to keep you doing this thing over and over that you're not that happy with anymore? And part of it was too, that I just kind of outgrew what I felt was what I wanted to do in the business. I'd kind of done everything a a successful fandom at that time would have done. Like uh, other than Madison Square Garden, you know, I did Radio City, Carnegie Hall, you know, these big tours and Grammy nominations. And I'm like, but my heart doesn't feel in it like it was at the beginning. And I would always notice that I'd go, oh man, it was so much fun when I was doing open mics. Wow, if it could only be like that back, you know, trying to make it and have fun with your friends who are also in the open mics. And that feeling was just gone. And I'm like, well, I called my business manager, you know, when I started to notice this stuff. And I was like, dude, I want to retire in two years. How much money do I have to save? cuz my parents brought me up like you better save money. They're depression era people. They were just like don't be stupid and I'm a good saver thank god. So um I was like wow, I can actually do this and have some hope of having those things in life that I personally couldn't get as a stand up meaning real connection to people, you know, real friendships, real family relationships where you show up for everything. And um you no, know, so far, so good. It's, it hasn't been easy because you lose your identity. And then you realize, oh, I'm just a person. Like I said, I go shopping. I, you know, go to the dry cleaner. I'm not fancy. I'm like, wow, that's an interesting adjustment after you're quote unquote, somebody in the business. But it's been a, a fruitful journey, but took about five years so far.
0: Yeah. 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 You talk about relationships and that's certainly something that anyone in entertainment, because you you're your own business you're your own commodity product so you have to sell that you have to constantly be hustling and trying to sell it and and having a relationship tied to you can it sometimes hold you back sometimes it can it can be a struggle to maintain that balance it sounds like that's your case as well
1: yeah i don't know how people do it like i know that amy schumer has a child and a husband and this that and the other and i'm like I admire that so much. I never actually wanted kids, and I probably didn't want a husband, to be honest, even though I was married twice. I just kind of like living alone, and I like to be on my own, but I'm like, man, some people know how to do it and are better at it than me. I was like, my relationships and friendships aren't deep enough. They're not soulful enough, and I'm like, I got to get out of this thing, then build a life, so I remember talking to Nikki Glazer a couple of years ago about um retiring. And I said, dude, do yourself a favor now, build a life so when you retire, you will have stuff to do. Like have a hobby. I don't have a hobby. What's a hobby? When you're so focused on making it and being one thing, what am I gonna woodwork? What am I, an embroiderer? Like the fact is, those things have to be in there and you have to know how to develop friendships and not you know, just have transactional friendships and things like that. So it's, uh, it's good to work on it. It's like the best work ever because you just get more of a soul connection every day.
0: Well, I can certainly attest to that being an actor myself. And I go from gig to gig. I go from like right now I'm in Florida. Who knows where my next gig will be before that I was in Connecticut. So I've been in all these different places and I, I make good friends during Mm -hmm. that two months, three months that I'm there, and then I move on and then I make another set of friends. So it, as you say, it is very transient, very transactional sometimes, the friendships and relationships we find.
1: Well, and I used to find that I was lucky enough that I made it where I could always bring my opening act with me. You know, I wasn't, I I sort of, once you make it, you could bring your little crew with you. And it ended up a lot of those friendships didn't last because. I wasn't being used by any means. I really think everybody who ever opened for me was just great. But it was sort of of the moment. And then it sort of went away. And it's like, oh, that's kind of sad because it's not. and, And you can't help but feel like that person owes you because you brought them and you started their career. So it's all this faulty stuff that and beliefs that after retirement I started to untangle. And I was like, oh, I screwed up there. I can actually be a real friend who doesn't feel like I'm owed anything or they owe me or I owe them. So it's it's very interesting work to just work on oneself.
0: And so has retirement allowed you in some ways to start over again and kind of reset your life in that way?
1: Yeah, and it's really, really hard because you take away your addiction. So if your addiction is fame or, I, it was never with me about money, but money is real good because it gets you therapy. Like that's what I'm always like, Save your money because at least you can go to the shrink, you know? <laughs> so um, money's a nice thing to have, if, especially if you kind of need to work on a lot of these issues, you know? But yeah, I think it, the hardest thing is being addicted to fame or achievement. I think it's more addicted to achievement. And I remember Jim Carrey said I had developed a TV show with him for uh, HBO that it never made it to air, but we worked on it together. And he said something like, uh, it's a pretty famous quote that he has that everyone should be rich and famous for one week so they see it doesn't solve anything. I'm like, man. But see, you tell people that who've never had it, and they're not going to believe you.
0: Right, because they're going to be different. They, they can't.
1: They, yeah, They can't believe it, but everyone comes to the same conclusion. So yeah, I think uh, once you take out the, I need to accomplish anything, and I'm just okay being me, not who i am on stage or stage name or whatever i'm just kind of who i am it's like wow that's really humbling and it's like huh interesting place to land and it's kind of like you have no who am i and i swear to god it's taken me five years to even figure out who i am and it's still getting there
0: well i mean while you were Stand-up comedian, you were labeled the Queen of Mean, you know, this insult comedy, and that was kind of your shit that you did on stage. Was that something that you wore with pride or were you? I loved it. Okay. Yeah.
1: I mean, I made up that nickname and planted it in the New York Times. Like I just knew how to work the business pretty well. (laughs) So uh I actually made up comedy's lovable Queen of Mean because it's lovable what I did. People didn't get mad at me for the most part. I'm sure they'd get mad at me now if because you can't do that kind of comedy anymore. But um Since I canceled myself before I could get canceled, I think it worked out pretty well. But yeah, I liked being like one of the only people who got away with it. You know, I mean, Jeff Ross gets away with it. I get away with it. You have to have that little thing in you that people know you don't mean it. Um, But I found too, I'm obviously not very jokey in my real life. I have fun, but I love not being the center of attention. I don't withhold if something's funny, I'm going to say it. But um, everyone, when I have game nights or people over, oh, everybody's kind of talking equally. I'm like, this is cool. What? Wow, you know? And I'm listening and learning stuff. And I'm like, hmm, not being the big shot is pretty good.
0: Well, is that a reason why you probably look to others and would like, you know, make fun of this person or that group because you wanted the attention to be elsewhere, not on you?
1: No, no. I think um, I just really loved that I had that gift where, it was so cute when they would send me emails back in the day before there was like mailing lists and things. Somebody would send a letter or a note and be like, oh, please spot us in Oakland. We're the three gay guys in the fourth row seats. One, to- Please make fun of us and call us names. So I just <laughs> loved that. Like they were like so into it. And I was like, OK. So I think part of it, it was really fun. Like there's nothing more fun when I occasionally somebody will send me a roast clip or something. I'm like. That shit was great. Like that was like so crazy. But also, um, in later years after retirement and writing the play that I did, I did talk more about me. And you're probably right to an extent that it's easier for an emotionally unavailable person like I was to focus outwards and focusing inwards, tough. But thank God it's something I don't shy away from anymore. Cause I'm like, whatever, man. Like. I don't have any secrets. Let it all come out. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting.
0: Do you think that that's been because you'd mentioned that your kind of comedy probably wouldn't make it today. Do you think that's a good development in comedy or do you think it's trying to find its way in this new culture?
1: Mm, I'm like split on it because like I'm not a comedy fan, believe it or not. Like I don't watch stand up. I don't really care. It feels like homework. And also comics tend to be super judgy, not only of themselves, obviously, but of everybody else. So, um, I do notice myself going to judgment in the world. Like, I'll be like, look at this one. And, like, just in my head, make a funny lineup. And I was like, oh boy, you can't say that today. So, I don't know. I love uh, that wokeness is more prevalent. I love that we can't say certain things anymore. So, my, I almost feel like every comic has to be able to look themselves in the mirror at the end of the night and say, I didn't hurt anybody. I didn't screw up. I didn't make a marginalized group feel bad. Like I try so hard now to never say anything that is untoward because even like, here's a a quote, like when, remember in the old days we used to say such and such is my spirit animal. And then I heard that's bad. So I'm like, okay, don't say that again and find a different way of saying it. So I like learning. I mean, at 61, you know, that's why I probably am around younger people a lot because they help educate me. So I kind of like that. But with comedy, I don't know, man. I feel I just feel sorry for comics who have to do comedy now because I don't know if I had the brain power or the wherewithal to kind of be that careful.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, it's a it's a narrow road to navigate, or at least it seems like it's a more narrow road you know, in preparing for this interview, I was going back to different roasts and different things and, you know, looking at ones that were years ago, looking at ones that are more recent, it's definitely more superficial now, I feel. I feel it has to be a little more superficial and just kind of easy. Whereas before, you could kind of dig into someone in a fun way. It was Everyone was laughing, but you could dig a little deeper and kind of really go after someone.
1: Well, because there's I mean, every part of every joke back on those roasts, I mean, there was like 20 offensive things per joke, you know? So it's like not even on the surface. It's like, oh, Jesus. But like uh, even worse was the Dean Martin roasts, which is what I loved when I was a kid. And the, that's the only standup I've ever seen. I never watched regular standup and I just loved the vibe of them. So it's obviously that what that's what drew me to kind of the roasts format. But I'm like, oh, my God, what they're saying is so hilarious. Like there's no arguing that it's hilarious, but also, you know, maybe it's time has come and gone. You know, I don't know how anyone would do a televised roast now. It'd be so freaking boring, you know, <laughs> it'd be horrible. So, Hey, maybe somebody smarter than me could do it. I just couldn't imagine it.
0: Well, getting to the second topic is that you've been very open about your own struggles with, with addiction throughout your life. There's been food, alcohol, prescription medication. Oh, no,
1: no, no, no. What, what are you making stuff up? Never, uh, this, this i have never... This is love.
0: what I love. This is what I love about, about internet. It's like it will come up with the most random things.
1: Oh, my God. I have never... That's hilarious. I have never... It's, I drank probably three times in my life and I hated it. But this is worth airing because... I so hated alcohol. And then I was like, well, I'm always like those, those three hangovers I had in my life were really bad. Right. And I was like, wait a minute. I like food and there's, you know, why not use the calories on food instead of booze if booze makes me miserable. So I, and I've never done drugs. I just hate being out of control. I'm very, I try not to be as controlling now, but, um, I'm such a control freak. Whenever I smoked even pot a few times, I felt horrible because I was out of control. So no, my drug of choice has always been food. And for a while it was uh, romantic relationships. I always had codependence issues from, oh my God, my first boyfriend was when I was 12. And then, you know, my last relationship ended when I was about, was it like 51 or something? So yeah, but, but food stuff and with food, And body image stuff, which is my big work of my life that I'm still working on. I don't know if food's an addiction. There's two schools of thought. Because it is something we need. Yes. There's this school of thought can you get addicted to air? Like if you can't cut it out, how can you be addicted to it? So I think with me, it's, and of course they debunked that sugar's addictive and they've debunked that, you know, all these things we thought were addictive weren't. But I think my thing is, I was addicted, I think, to pushing problems and feelings down, no matter what. So when you'd go back to your room after a comedy show and you felt lonely, well, let me order room service. Let's call my opening act and say, hey, man, you want to come up for ice cream sundays or whatever it is? So I think the real addiction is pushing the uncomfortableness down. And with mine, it happened most of the time be with food.
0: Well, I certainly relate to that. And I think a lot of people can with the pandemic. That's whenever oh. I was home, sitting in front of the TV. And, and what do you do? You eat, you munch, you you, yep. you drink, you do whatever. And I know that, I mean, for myself, people talked about the weight that they gained during the pandemic. I was certainly still, still dealing with that. But I, that was really the first time that I noticed my own dependency of sort to let food be this comfort to me.
1: Yes, well, I mean, I grew up Italian, and that's what you did. You know, food is love. And I noticed I made a, I'm working with a new therapist about the food stuff, and I was I'm reading her book, and I re- I go Let me write a timeline of that pandemic because what had happened was I got the weight loss surgery in 2010, I think, lost all the weight. Um, it all stayed off um miraculously, because as you know, with weight loss surgery, people gain a lot back all the time. And I noticed, I'm like, when did I, because I put on about 10 pounds and I was so like, why? Like, what happened? I did this timeline this week and I was like, oh, it wasn't the pandemic for me. My mom died literally two years tomorrow, two years ago tomorrow. And I noticed when she was gone, that's your last parent. Uh, I'm living in this house that where my food issues started. So, I'm trying to heal them in the same environment. And I'm like, oh, this is really good to notice. And what was I pushing down? I was pushing down grief for my mom, grief for the old life, grief for nobody ever cooking for me again. I'm like, oh, that was good to know. So, I like examining it and trying to figure it out. But also at the same time, going, I'm not trying to lose weight. I know diet culture is bullshit. I know thin is not better than fat. I know it has nothing to do with health. If you that's, The BMI is an antiquated tool of measurement. And I work with a lot of anti-fat bias people, fat phobic people who I'm like, oh, this isn't bad to be in the body I'm in. How about I just start to not hate it? You know, people thin, fat in between everywhere. We don't like how we look. And it's like, do I want to spend my next 30 years hating my body? How about I'm not going to I'm not going to love it. I want to be neutral about it, where all it is is this vehicle to carry around my brain and my heart. In my family, we haven't had much cancer or anything like that. That's what bothers me, too, about me getting the weight loss surgery. It's because I didn't really have health problems at all. Like, I was the healthiest fat person in the world. The doctor was like, well, you don't have high blood pressure. You don't have cholesterol. But yes, technically, you should lose 100 pounds technically but you're not unhealthy so that's the thing i'm like man i just and and by the way i'm not complaining i'm so lucky because my whole family lives really long i mean we couldn't get rid of my mom bless her heart she was she was 80 no she was 91 so you might see me for 30 years if you're lucky <laughs> so that what i'm working on now is just body neutrality it's just a thing it's very interesting work because The answer's never thin enough. The answer's never rich enough. You have to say enough. I wear a necklace all the time that just says good enough. Like, I'm fine. I'm never going to be the fattest, the thinnest, the ugliest, the prettiest. Who gives a shit? I'm fine. Well,
0: that's something that I'm trying to do myself with food. I'm trying to have it be this neutral thing in my life rather than be a comfort, Mm -hmm. rather than be something that I do when I'm bored, rather than, you know, whatever it is. I'm trying to have it be well. I need to eat in order to sustain my daily activities, but that's it. It doesn't need to represent more than that.
1: Well, it doesn't need to, but it does because because we all need birthday cake. And I always would joke in my show when I wrote that off Broadway show stuff. I was like, if you don't eat cake at a birthday party, I can't be friends with you. Like you're an <laughs> asshole. You know. So oh, of I, course, I'm, of course, obviously that's taking somebody's inventory and making it a joke, but you know. I think there's nothing wrong with when it's Thanksgiving or when you know. Oh, that reminds me. My, by the way, my dog sitter. I don't know how I met this woman. She's an angel. She's an older Italian lady with broken English. Nona, and she literally makes meatballs. I've never had a meatball that tasted identical to my mother's, and hers do. I'm not going to be hungry, but I'm going to eat those meatballs. You know what I mean? So I think comfort's okay because it's delicious and fun. But it's that balance of like my go-to is, ooh, am I eating because I'm uncomfortable with how I feel? Am I sad? Am I grief stricken? Am I lonely? Am I angry? And then stuffing that. So that's why I called the show Stuffed because I was like, oh, my God, I'm stuffed with feelings. And why stuff food too? So it's a very, like you say, it's a delicate, it's just delicate balance, man.
0: Because then the more you eat because you're feeling sad about yourself, then you probably get fatter, which makes you hate that, which makes, and so it becomes a vicious cycle of the eating.
1: Right. And also it's us judging that fat is worse than thin. And also, by the way, you're right, because then they always say, and like, I have friends who are in AA and I love people in recovery because I get to pick their brain about all this stuff. And my friend said, there's a saying, when you drink over a problem, then you have two problems. So if I'm eating and stuffing down a feeling, which I do all the time, and I notice it and go, okay, I have to forgive myself, compassion, compassion, and then go, huh, okay, the problem didn't go away. Like suddenly it's not like, oh, now I'm not sad my mother died. Oh, now I'm not sad I didn't, dot, 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 whatever that thing is. But working on grief, sadness, even the little sadnesses of, Oh, I didn't get that thing in my career. Or, oh, I didn't get that. I didn't have, you know, the wedding that I wanted to have, whatever it is, even if it sounds like a little thing, it's still sad. And we have to feel the sadness, which I, like many people was so afraid to go there. You know, every time I have a lot of friends who are like beginning actors. And they'll get callbacks for Broadway shows and they get this close. I'll be, I never ask, did you get it? Cause that's, they'll tell you if they got it, by the way, people shut up. Don't ask your friends. They'll tell you, you'll get the email. Um, But when they don't and they're sad, I'm just, they're like, Oh my God, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, feel the grief first. You get to be sad over that. And then you bring that to the next audition and it's just it's so, so much better to f- deal with the feeling. But again, you know, hopefully by the time I'm 90, I'll be doing more, you know, I'll be able to do it better.
0: Yeah. I uh, took a class with Joanna Gleason and she said something of the same oh, thing. Love. Yeah. She was wonderful. And in her master class, she said, when you have a crappy audition, take the 20 minutes, yell at yourself, get mad at yourself, feel the feels, like get it out. Like you sucked. Okay. Let's go with that. But then- let it go, put it aside, and now move on. Yeah. So she was very much about acknowledging it before you go on.
1: Oh my God, it's so funny because like auditions must be, I mean, I never had an audition for much because I had that small window where I was famous enough to just get cast in things because it's stunt casting. I'm not a great actor. I think I did really well in one TV show that I did. I feel like I nailed, I really felt like I knew what I was doing. The rest I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I can't even memorize. I'm terrible at memorizing. I always say everybody should put me in a play that has one killer song and no lines. I'm like, okay, make me that chick. Like I just did. I did a community theater production of Barnum and sang that song Black and White. And then you don't even have a line. I think actually I did have one line, but I kept forgetting it. So I gave it away. I was like, <laughs> Matt, say my freaking line, be a star. But the audition process for you guys has got to be torture. I don't. I don't envy anyone who has to do it. In fact, I don't envy casting directors because when we had to cast my off-Broadway show, I literally felt sorry for every person who came in, even if they weren't prepared or were bad. I didn't know. You want to give everybody the part. I don't think people get how hard that casting is for people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely, I mean, talk about yo-yo dieting auditions, giving you that yo-yo emotional, it's constantly back and forth and you feel high on a great audition, but then you don't get cast. Even with yeah. a great audition, you just never know.
1: But dude, it never ends for me either in a funny way, because I don't want to be in the business necessarily anymore. I don't care. I've you know taken the ego out of it. But occasionally my manager will send me something that somebody inquires about. So a very famous TV show that won a ton of Emmys last year was like, oh, we want to have Lisa on this season. And I'm like, well, I'm, I, you know, I'm not a great actress, but if they want me and I'll like memorize it, like I'll figure out how to memorize, like whatever. And um, cause that's a mental block for me. And um, I'm like, well, what happened? I just saw that they finished shooting this season. And my manager's like, I guess it didn't happen. So you still feel sad. <laughs> but That's the thing. It's not even anger. It's it's not, they want what they want. Who gives a crap? I'm not mad at them, but I think underneath all that anger, all that whatever, it's always sad. And I'm like, I'm just kind of sad I didn't get that show. And she, my manager by now knows to not argue with me about feelings. <laughs> and I, She's like, yeah, it is sad. And I'm like, yeah. So. Couple days later, it's fine. But I think we don't allow ourselves to feel how it hurts our feelings. We're allowed to get hurt.
0: Whenever you lost all that weight after your surgery, did that make you feel better? Did that give you a sense of happiness in that sense?
1: I mean, Goldie Hawn said the best thing ever. I'm. She was quoting this study. She was on Oprah one day, and she was quoting a study that said, it was about happiness, cause she works on like happiness. Uh, and she said, there was a study that said, no matter what you acquire, whether it's a new house, new job, new body, new whatever, within nine months, you're back to your base level of happiness. So I noticed that when I lost the weight, I was stoked. I mean, come on, man, you're just shedding all these pounds. At the time I didn't know it was fat phobic. At the time, I didn't know that f- fat was fine. I wish I could have worked on that. I wish Lizzo had been around back then so I knew there was role models and things. But, you know, I've grown up in Thai culture. I really thought then was the only way to be. So I lose all this weight. But after nine months, I'm like, oh, I'm. F- it's fine. Like I still was like happy because I was like getting attention and that's the ego. But I was like, oh, I'm still just me. I'm me, but in a smaller body. Okay, I was like, I'm still just Lisa. Still got to go back to the shrink, work on myself. Nothing fills the hole. Thinness doesn't fill the hole. Success doesn't fill the hole. Money doesn't fill the hole, and it is just out of our control. And we have to just do the work. And it's funny. I read a, the greatest book ever. Every actor needs to read it. It's called Fame by Justine Bateman, who was on that show uh, Family Ties, and it is a study in How fame is literally not in your control. Working on your craft is in your control. That's all you have control over. And it is so heartbreaking. I read it after I retired and was like, What am I going to do? Oh my God, I have no identity. And I'm like, Oh my God, they can give you fame and take it away really quickly. I'm like, Wow, this is deep. And it really taught me that I never had control over anything. We don't have control over our bodies. We might get in an accident tomorrow and lose a leg, God forbid. I could be shot when I leave here today. Not likely. I'm in Connecticut. They don't shoot people in Connecticut. <laughs> but I mean, who? God forbid, who knows? And I'm like, man, I just got to work on kind of liking me now. I kind of, I'm stuck with me. I don't have a choice.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's something that as I get older, as I you know go through various relationships, different points in my career, it's a matter of. Finding a satisfaction, a contentment with where I'm at rather than where I want to be.
1: Yeah, because guess what? You never arrive where you want to be. First, it's Carnegie Hall because it's, you know, 3,500 seats. Then it's Radio City because it's, I'll never forget the number, 6,732 seats. Then, Then it's Madison Square Garden, but then that's not enough because somebody else is doing the O Arena in London or someplace like that. And it never is enough. And I, it really dawned on me when a girl wanted to interview me for her master's thesis about comedy. And she asked me my 10 biggest accomplishments. And after I listed them, she's like, uh, and this was literally before retirement, before I even thought about retirement. She goes, but those are all like personal things like, oh, I had Thanksgiving for my family. Oh, I went to my nieces this or whatever. I helped my father transition to in hospice. I'm like, oh yeah, because career, who cares? Like it doesn't even matter. So isn't it funny what we're left with is the connection and the real thing. And that's really the stuff that we'll look back on. I mean, dude, you would laugh. My house, I have all my my Grammy medals and my freaking sold out Radio City photograph and the frame this and the frame that. But they're all in the basement. They're hung up. I don't dishonor them or else just throw them out. But they're all like in the basement, hung up queue or whatever. But it's a basement. My house is all pictures of people, nobody famous. And I'm like, all right. Well, I guess if you let it come up, that's what really counts. Well, it's,
0: it's a matter of letting our career enhance our life and better our life rather than be our life.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm so happy that mo- some millennials are really getting that now. Like where I have a niece who has a podcast that is huge and it exploded by accident. They do huge tours, big theaters, and she's 30, I guess, but has a life. Like she's married, the, the baby. I saw today on Be Real that they're at the Boston Children's Museum because the show isn't until eight o'clock tonight. And I'm like, oh, that's like a life and also a career. So I think that age group might get it better than mine did. Mine was just that Joan Rivers Drive, you know, where you in her documentary, it was the saddest, I thought it was the saddest documentary I've ever seen of Drive. It just was so tragic that she looked at that calendar and if it had an empty day, she just wanted to shoot herself. And now I look at an empty calendar. I don't like an empty calendar, but I like a calendar with dinner with so-and-so and so going to see this play because a friend's in it, even if it's like some janky-ass community theater or whatever, going to, you know, uh, see so-and-so at their little play or whatever. And I'm like, that would scare me if my calendar didn't have that. But boy, to have nothing to do with business, it's pretty spectacular. But again, people aren't going to get it till they get it, and that's Okay.
0: Don't forget this episode is only part of the conversation. If you want to hear audition stories and answers to the final five questions, then become a monthly or yearly subscriber to Why I'll Never Make It. For just a few dollars a month, you'll not only support WinMe, but you'll also get extended ad-free conversations with guests you won't find anywhere else. Go to WhyI'llNeverMakeIt.com and click subscribe, or just look for the link in the show notes. Well, for our third topic, I wanted to talk about the charity work that you've done, especially with LGBT community organizations like the Gay Men's Health Crisis. Why has that been so important to you?
1: I was always trying to figure out why that charity and also like being sort of deemed an ally by the gay community felt right to me. And I think it's because I always felt different and left out and strange, like I'm I'm kind of a chick, but I do comedy like a guy. So what the hell am I? So I'm not non-binary or anything, but I'm I'm like, I'm just a fucking misfit. And I'm like, I'm lucky enough to be able to have privilege, white privilege, straight privilege. So it doesn't get me ostracized. And I'm like, I think I just felt a kinship with people who feel they have to hide part of themselves. Because, you know, back in the day and still some places, gay people can't come out and they're scared. So I think I just kind of really identified with that longing inside and that feeling sort of different. Um, So when I did The Celebrity Apprentice, they were like, what's your charity that you want to give money to? And I'm like, oh, Gay Men's Health Crisis. I'm all over that. So I was so proud because I like won, I think it was 120 grand for them. And they were very happy. So yeah, it made me me happy. And then I also started working with the uh, North Shore Animal League where I adopted one of my dogs, one of my dumb rescue dogs. I love them, but they're so stupid. And um, <laughs> so one out of three came from there. So yeah, those those ones just hit me in the heart. You know, I think you can't force it. It just it hits you when it hits you.
0: Well, it goes back to those gay men that reached out to you and said, hey, we're going to be at your show. Please make fun of us. It, in some ways, so it's great. a way of, of being recognized, of being seen.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it, that's true, too, because I remember when I was not at all known yet, And the Friars Club had like set me up to go see Don Rickles. They're like, oh, you know, Rickles, I'm sure would love your comedy. And he's the legend, you know. And I went with my parents and I wanted him to make fun of me. Like, I was just like, oh, my God, please move our seats up front. And I remember he poked at my dad a little, which my dad loved. So I think we all just want to be seen. And it's really it's interesting. That's I think everybody's motivation. Just be seen.
0: And. Now that you're retired, you're being seen in a different way. Is it more satisfying, just as satisfying?
1: Yeah, because I think what happens is you're seen one-on-one. Like, my mother has one friend who's still alive because she was a little younger than my mom. I think she's 86. And it hit me like about six months ago. I go, oh my God, my mother loved Mrs. So-and-so. And and she was always sharp. So I go, she's going to be sharp. She's going to be fun to talk to. And I started going every two weeks and we play cards and we laugh our asses off. She tells me all these stories. I'm like, oh, she's seeing me as me and just the nice person, the fun person, the person who brings her these silly treats from Ireland because I found an Irish store and she's Irish. And that's being really seen. I'm still uncomfortable and haven't ventured to be seen romantically because I'm not sure if that's something I want. Um, and that must be really scary because I've never really probably done that um, but I'm being seen by my friends. Dude, I cry. I don't even worry about the tears. I'm like, if a friend of mine's uncomfortable with tears, then we I guess we can't be friends because I'm going to tear up. And that's when I notice the connections really happen is when they're not afraid to cry. I'm not afraid to cry and just go, yep, this too shall pass. Fucking sucks right now. So I like it. This is much more fulfilling to me, at least.
0: Yeah, because as someone who you called yourself emotionally unavailable for so many years to now be in touch with those, it must be a relief. But I I imagine there's a bit of uncomfortability with it as well sometimes.
1: There was with friends. Now it's with friends, it's kind of easy, but I wouldn't have said that five years ago. And PS, it's so hard with some family members because they still, you still feel like you got to be strong for them and you got to be the one who, You know, it was the toughest one in the family and get it done. And I'm like, oh, maybe I'll work up to where I could be more emotionally available for them. So I think it's just all stuff that you work on. And then eventually you surprise yourself by having it happen and you can't force it. Like if I said to you, I'm going to call my sister right now and tell her something that deeply is sad in my life. She'd be like, are you dying? Because like, what are you doing? So I think you'll know when you're ready
0: do you find yourself being a different person with different people? Like you can only be so much of yourself?
1: I find I hold back more with people who saw the wounds originate. We all have childhood wounds. And I think those are the people who it's hardest to be more open with. And not even like they did anything to you. You're just like, well, they're used to me as being the lighthearted one in the family or the uh, peacemaker or the fixer. And then you just go, but I can't show them this part of me. But I bet that changes. It's it's this line between you can't force it too early, but also you can't never do it. You gotta let yourself do it and not let yourself off the hook for the rest of your life.
0: Yeah, because I know for myself, my mother is probably obviously she's the one that has known me the longest. So it's a different mm-hmm. person I sometimes feel like that I'm with her than I am with maybe friends, you know, because there's She's generally the last person to know certain deeper things. Sure. It can be harder with those longer relationships.
1: And that's where the concept of chosen family is really good. And my goal is to hopefully work on my stuff so much that there's kind of no fear around letting them see the whole thing. But my mother never saw the whole thing because she passed and I wasn't working on a lot of this stuff yet. But she knows. I mean, that big Yenta is up there going, oh, yeah, Lisa's doing good.
0: <laughs> well, this has been so great to talk to you about stuff like this. Yay! I'm so happy about this.
1: Of course, this was fun.
0: Thank you so much for joining Lisa Lampanelli and me today. And remember, you can get access to bonus content and conversations by going to whyillnevermakeit.com and click subscribe click subscribe. Or just find that link in the show notes and use that. Well, all right, now let's get to this week's comment, which comes from Joseph Smith 5410 on YouTube. Joseph commented on another comedian, Judy Tenuta, who came on the podcast last year to talk about her career as well as her bout with cancer. She sadly passed away, though, in October of 2022. And there were many wonderful tributes and comments about her and our conversation together on that YouTube episode. And specifically, Joseph said, I've always loved her. And now after watching this, I love her even more. What a funny and beautiful woman she was inside and out. I still can't believe she's gone. Her joy, positivity, and fight is what I will take away from this interview. I hope these things can help guide me in dark times too. It can happen. R.I.P. Judy. Well, I couldn't agree with you more, Joseph. And the fact that she took a half hour out of her busy schedule to talk to me was a true blessing. In fact, she was on her way to the doctor right after our interview. And it was very sad to learn of her passing just this past year. Judy was and always will be a remarkable comedian. So thank you for listening and sharing your own thoughts about her and our conversation together. Well, that about does it for me. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast, which is a production of Win Me Media, with Maria Clara Ribeiro joining on as co-producer. Background music used in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions and John Bartman. Be sure to join me next time as we talk more about why I'll never make it.